Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody. This is your host, Paul. Today, we're going to be talking with Mr. Michael Whitwer, the author of Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax, and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons, published by Bloomsbury in 2015. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Thrilled to be here. So can you maybe just start, as is the tradition on the network, with telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background, as well as your background with Dungeons and Dragons? Sure. Um, uh, there's uh, quite a bit in that, but uh, I think I'll start at the very beginning. It's often the best place to start. I Hi, everybody. This is your host, Paul. Today, we're going to be talking with Mr. Michael Whitwer, the author of Empire of Imagination, Gary Gygax, and the Birth of Dungeons and Dragons, published by Bloomsbury in 2015. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Paul. Thrilled to be here. So can you maybe just start, as is the tradition on the network, with telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, your background, as well as your background with Dungeons & Dragons? Sure. Um, uh, There's uh, quite a bit in that, but uh, I think I'll start at the very beginning. It's often the best place to start, I suppose. Um, So um, firstly, with Dungeons & Dragons, I've been playing D&D since I was was probably five or six years old. Um, I'll never forget actually my introduction to the game because I, I remember my brother wanted these D and D books that, that, you know, he'd been playing the game with a neighborhood kid and this same kid had, was selling his books. And so I remember going with him and my father over to this, this kid's house and, um, and my brother, uh, I'm sorry, my father rather haggling with this, this teenage kid basically, uh, to buy his, his late seventies, 1980s, um, D and D books, which was like a one or two foot high stack of, of, uh, these, these great old books, um, and uh, so, yeah, so Sam took it home. Uh, my brother Sam took it home and we um, started playing. He was probably, you know, nine or ten. And I was, again, probably five, six, seven, somewhere in that range. Um, so I've been playing D&D ever since. It's been pretty much a lifelong hobby and passion. Uh, in the meantime, of course, I grew up and did all the things that, that usual people do. I went to high school and um, ended up going to college at Northwestern University, where I was actually um, majoring in music and musical theater. Uh, so my aspiration was actually to be a um, something more in the performing arts um, world, which I think is, again, I, I would on many levels relate that to my background in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, uh, again, I grew up more out of that and ended up getting into a career of um, product marketing and proposal writing, which is what I do to this day. I'm a, a director of proposal and marketing for um, a, a national healthcare services company. Um, so that's my, that's my trade, you might say. Uh, but in the, in the process of all of that, um, I, um, I was getting my master's at the university of Chicago. Um, and I had an opportunity to write basically a master's thesis or a master's special project, um, of my choosing. And I ended out, um, picking something that was very near and dear to me, which of course was Dungeons and Dragons, uh, specifically a, a biographical project on Gary Gygax who, of course, I had been aware of for my whole life. You know, this was the, the gentleman that was on the, the front of all these books that I grew up with. Uh, but I never had given a lot of thought to the, the man behind the, the name, you might say. And so um, this particular project I did a few years ago gave me the opportunity to, to go ahead and 
uh, explore his background and the history of, of this great game that I you know grew up with. Um, and uh, that ended up being an extensive enough project that I adapted it um, into book length and actually shopped and got myself an agent and then ended up selling the book to Bloomsbury, as you suggested, um, for a publication of 2015. So, so that's a lot, but I, I tried to condense it as best I could anyway. Great. And what was your general methodology, Michael, uh, in approaching this research project? Your book is really exhaustive. It's impressive in terms of the number of sources you bring to bear. Uh, and you rely on interviews and, and quite a few other primary sources. Uh, good question. Um, so the methodology at first was certainly kind of, um, you know, trying to figure out it, figure it out as you go. Um, so considering that it started as um, a traditional research project at the University of Chicago, uh, that was certainly the place I started, right? This the, the concept of of really mining as many book and archival sources as you could, um, and then realizing that I because I live in Chicago, so I live relatively close to where a lot of this went down there in Lake Geneva, which is about what seventy miles away, seventy miles north. Um, realizing that I, I might actually get access to a lot of the individuals that were there uh, in the form of interviews. Uh, and that's exactly really how it went down is I, I really kind of started looking under some rocks um, and realizing that that the people that that, you know, while people like Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson um, have since passed away, a lot of the people that were working very closely with them and knew them really better than anybody else were, were alive and well and nearby. And not only that, but actually uniquely accessible, which I think made it a really interesting process. So, I mean, I was pretty amazed when I could reach out to people like. Um, Steve Chenault, one of his his late associates uh, from Trollor Games, or reach out to Tim Cask, the original editor of Dragon Magazine, uh, or, or Frank Menser, or uh, any n- number of the Gygax family who um, who ended up kind of introducing me to, uh, I would do an interview, say, with Luke, and he would introduce me to Ernie, so on and so forth. Um, and so it was really this kind of, I, I guess it's a critical path that I could have never planned, um, because you don't really know who you're going to get a hold of and who they're going to introduce you to or where you're going to go from there. Um, so, again, it's it's hard to say that it's it's a, a particularly strategic methodology. It's kind of like you you dive in and you start uncovering things under rocks and you keep going and going and going uh, until you start really getting some incredible information. Then you start connecting, connecting the dots on things and realizing you've got a fairly cohesive and interesting narrative. Um, so that's pretty much how it went, again, starting with the impetus of doing it as part of this this uh, research project at the University of Chicago. Well, why don't we get into the book then? Can you just take us a little bit through what Gary's childhood and adolescent years uh, in Chicago and then subsequently in Lake Geneva, what were those like? Uh, Were there some insights that you took from those years that later led into his inspiration around fantasy role playing? Um, I had no idea, for example, when you talked about his dislike for Tolkien, um, because so much of his work seems so Tolkien-esque. So, Hmm. yeah, can you just maybe talk us through some of those uh, early years? Absolutely. Well, so, you know, one thing that happens when you when you study a person on this in this depth is that you realize you start to think everything is important. Right. And, and, and to a certain extent, it is when you're really deep in the research on somebody, you, your natural inclination is to make connections about, oh, they they used to love to do this. That must be how they came up with that. Well, you know, and, and to a certain extent, you can do that. But you have to always remember that unless they ever said it or unless there was something that that really suggested that this is absolutely an inspiration for that. You don't really want to. um, You have to be careful about making those connections, I think. Um, So, you know, the early life, again, I can think of a lot of things early in his life that clearly if they didn't 
inspire later things. They certainly, um, they certainly told you a lot about the person. And that was really what the thrust of my book was more about was trying to show you and tell you, um, about this, this wonderful, amazing person named Gary Gygax, uh, who did these incredible things. Um, so, you know, starting very early, yeah, he was, so he was born in Chicago. Um, he was born in Chicago in 1938 and, um, grew up here only as a young boy. You know, he had a much, much older, uh, half brother and sister. His father was actually um, well into his 50s by the time Gary was born. So he was he was a, a somewhat elderly father and a, and a much younger mother who had, again, been married once before. Um, and uh, again, Gary grew up in this kind of very uh, traditional lifestyle in a little bit of an up and coming neighborhood. I, w- I might call it a rough neighborhood at the time, uh, about a mile away from Wrigley Field, um, a little bit north of there. Uh, and what ended up happening was uh, his father, who was a suit salesman at, at Rothschild and Company, which was a big department store downtown, um, decided to move the family when Gary was about, um, I think it was seven years old. Uh, based on this big brawl that Gary got into um, with a couple of neighborhood kids. Basically, he was in this kind of little neighborhood gang, which I don't know, that's probably overstating what it really was. It was a bunch of kids up to no good uh, on his street. And uh, they got into a big fight. Um, and what ended up happening was uh, as a result of this, his parents both thought this is really not a good neighborhood. It's not a good place to be. Um, and they wanted to find a more wholesome, safer environment to raise their um, their young son, Gary. Again, the, the other two children were quite a bit older. Um, so they did. They moved up to Lake Geneva, which is where Gary's mother, Posey, uh, which is her nickname, um, Elmina Posey, uh, was from. Um, her parents still lived there in this big green Victorian house on Dodge Street. So uh, after Gary's brawl, the parents move up to this this wonderful grand Victorian house on Dodge Street. They move in with the... the um, with Gary's grandparents. And that's where Gary grows up, really. So that's really where you would say his um, his childhood starts uh, more than anything else. Now, that's not to ignore some of the important things that happened in Chicago really early on. You know, Gary talks, uh, or Gary used to talk, I should say, very um, uh, with, with a lot of uh, sentiment around uh, going to the Field Museum, for example, and looking at this all these wonderful cases of stuffed animals and birds. And I, I remember always thinking to myself how um, to, in a weird sort of way, the, the, the taxidermy exhibit at the, the Field Museum, which is this labyrinthine um, uh, maze of, of, of stuffed animals and monsters, you might say. That's like the original monster manual in a weird sort of way. Um, it's, you know, so there's a lot of things like that. Of course, the Field Museum has this tremendous uh, mummy exhibit, an Egyptian exhibit. And, of course, uh, many, many of Gary's later works uh, were Egyptian-themed. So, again, it's, it would nat- be natural to make the connection that, that Gary found a lot of these early inspirations, doing things like that. Um, so, again, growing up to kind of to, to cut to the chase with his Lake Geneva life. So, of course, Lake Geneva is this really interesting place for many, many reasons. Uh, you know, uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, for one thing, is a resort community for kind of wealthy regional executives from Milwaukee and, and Chicago. Um, that is to say, it has these tremendous mansions that, that, um, that surround the lake. And it's this beautiful, very deep fishing river. It's really, I'm sorry, lake rather. And it's, um, it's, it's probably the, the, the closest, um, really legitimate fishing and scenic destination you can get if you live in somewhere like Chicago, which of course is very flat and otherwise fairly industrial. So, um, Gary moves from again, this urban environment to this place that he used to only visit his grandparents once in a while, which is Lake Geneva. And uh, it's just this amazing town for him, right? It's a very small town during the off season. In the summer, the population swells to, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 people. But 
But year-round, a town like Lake Geneva has got like 8,000, 5,000, 8,000 permanent residents. So it's basically a small fishing town for most of the year. And uh, as a result, Gary, of course, loves to wander the town and, and pull pranks. He was a tremendous prankster, always up to something. Um, you know, a very Rockwell-esque type of childhood, you might say. Um, and one of the things he likes to do is he likes to wander around, uh, when he gets a little bit older anyway, he likes to wander around this um, abandoned insane asylum that's on the highest point in town. Um, because one thing that's unique about Lake Geneva is not only was it this kind of rustic fishing town and not only was it this this resort destination for Chicago executives, it was also because it was it was peaceful and serene and beautiful. It was also considered really therapeutic for people with with mental disorders. So as a result, there's there's like a bunch of sanitariums and um, institutions in and around uh, the Lake Geneva area, including this one that was at really the most prominent spot in town. So one of the things Gary used to love to do was was go and wander around this these ruins, and and it really was in ruins by the time Gary was a kid. But it's it, it's it's like something out of a movie. I mean, if you could see pictures of uh, what was called the Oakwood Sanitarium, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, this big old kind of, um, uh, I mean, again, a, a kind of a Romanesque style building with windows all knocked out, and it was it was kind of like a dungeon. And again, Gary used to suggest that a lot of his dungeon ideas, I should say, um, uh, for his modules anyway, came from from wandering the catacombs and the lower laundry tunnels of this particular place. So uh, Lake Geneva was this kind of wonderful and great adventure for this this very imaginative and kind of troublemaking kid growing up, Gary Gygax. Um, and so, you know, again, a lot of the things that he does um, really, kind of, I think, really set his mind into a uh, into motion when it comes to imagination. And I will point out at least one other thing that I think is particularly um, important to his growing up is um, outside of going to the movie theater and watching, you know, weekly serials that have all kinds of different traps and um, adventure scenes going on. Um, he claims that he had two uh, paranormal experiences in his uh, his grandparents' house uh, that were very formative to him. Um, you know, one was kind of just bump in the night upstairs in the attic situation. Uh, the other was this tremendous experience where he talks about it. He, he described it very vividly in a few different accounts where he talked about reading the fall of the house of Usher in, in the, um, in the sitting room, in the, in the parlor, I should say. Um, and there was a, there was a maid's room, um, off of the, the parlor. Um, no maid at that point, but there was a maid's room off the parlor and, and there was a door that was about, you know, uh, a foot open. He was sitting there home alone with his cat cue ball in his lap. And he claims that as he was at a particularly dramatic part in the book, uh, on this rainy day, I think it was in November, he looks up and he sees the room, the maid's room door open another foot and a half or two feet. And that disembodied footsteps walk up to his chair and stop. And he just freaks out and he uh, gets up out of his chair, runs upstairs. And instead of running out of the house, as you would expect most people would do, um, he uh, he ends up getting his lemonwood bow and his machete and going back downstairs and monitoring the door for uh, the rest of the afternoon until his mother came home. And I, I always thought that was such a great story, if for all the reason to show you the kind of guy Gary was. Instead of running from danger, he's the guy that was going to arm himself and come back to the, the scene of the crime. So, again, I, I think that's a pretty good illustration of the kind of person and the kind of childhood Gary had. Yeah, I, I like the... I like the uh, anecdote with the lemon wood bow that that stuck with me when I when I read the book. Uh, segueing into Gary's early married years in uh, in Lake Geneva, he married um, a, a girl who he had, I understand, grown up playing with uh, as, as a child. Um, and you describe this 
situation of dueling passions where he's married, but things are somewhat tempestuous because of the amount of time and obsession that Gary was putting into his wargaming. Can you describe that period in, in Gary's life? Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, a couple of things happen there. So, you know, obviously Gary grows up, he's kind of this small town bad boy, very brilliant guy, but, you know, doesn't finish high school, right? He, he drops out of high school his junior year, uh, which I think is an amazing part of this story. Doesn't never get a driver's license. Again, other stories that, that, that contribute to this amazing life this guy had and all that he accomplished uh, in the face of some of these things that he didn't do. Um, so doesn't finish high school, let alone college, ends up getting a, a job um, as um uh, I think it was in the mailroom at first at an insurance company downtown Chicago. In those days, you could train from Lake Geneva to Wisconsin to Chicago and back. Uh, that train line no longer runs that that whole route, but you could do it back then. It was about an hour and a half each way. And um, yeah, he he reconnects with this girl of his childhood, uh, uh, Mary Jo Powell, um, who he used to play with as a very young boy. And then she moved away for a number of years. And when she came back, uh, at around adolescent time, they weren't really connected anymore. And then she was kind of a good girl and she followed the rules and did her homework and all that stuff, uh, at, at, in high school. Whereas Gary, of course, was a bad boy, didn't do his homework, was, was, you know, um, doing all the things you weren't supposed to do. So they reconnected, um, right after Gary actually did a very short stint in the Marines, um, where, uh, he, he actually, uh, got out of there pretty quickly, um, as a result of mostly health reasons. Um, but what ends up happening, uh, is that he, he marries, uh, Mary and they, um, uh, they moved to Chicago pretty quick, um, to, again, for Gary to be able to, to work these, these insurance job. And, and he actually ends up getting Mary a job there soon as well. Um, well, Gary gets into insurance underwriting during this period. Uh, that becomes his career, you might say. Uh, and meanwhile, they start having kids. Um, so within, I think it was only about a year after they, they actually got married, he, they had their first uh, child, uh, Ernest Gary Gygax Jr., Ernie, as many people would know him today. Um, and, uh, you know, and so what ends up happening is that Gary figures out pretty quickly at, once he gets into war gaming, which he does at about the same time as when he gets married, uh, is that he, he becomes a slave to his hobbies and his passions. You know, Gary is always into something, and when he gets into something, he just jumps both feet into it. And we see that time and time again, whether it's actually oil painting on the side or wargaming or everything in between, he gets really, really obsessed with things. And he just he pursues them with all of his passion and all of his gusto. Um, so it ha what happens pretty quickly, of course, is this becomes uh, a wedge between uh, he and his first wife, Mary. Um, if for no other reason, then, you know, Gary's working this job. Again, for a good period of time, he's doing very long commutes. Uh, the, the, the young couple ends up moving back to Lake Geneva not too long. And um, and then again, Gary's back on this commute trail of an hour and a half both ways each day. And then and then he'll go run off and, you know, play war games or something like that. And meanwhile, they're having kids every two years. So you can imagine by the late 60s or even 1970, as the, the, the child total gets nearer to five, finally finally gets to five, Um uh, you can imagine that that it becomes a, a not a very popular thing that Gary gets more and more involved in these wargaming groups uh, and miniatures um, wargaming groups um, as time goes by. And again, he, these are not passive pastimes. They're the kind of things that you go away for a Saturday and you might spend 12 hours doing and come back in the middle of the night. Or you might do an all nighter doing this stuff. And again, that's not super compatible with trying to, to raise a family, keep a job and all the stuff that's involved in, in you know, um, kind of being able to meet all your commitments. 
it's interesting how I think you might have said it was later on in his life. He basically said, look, keep your war gaming and gaming to once a week if your wife's not into it. <laughs> Yeah, it was a, that was a pretty amazing quote that he made very late in his life. I want to say it was between 2005 and 2007. It was a message board quote. And again, amazing, an amazing turnaround, frankly, for a person that had really spent um, a huge portion of his young and, and uh, early married years doing just that, doing nothing but sure. and stuff. And, you know, and, and spending time with the kids. He really loved spending time with his kids, but um, it certainly leaves little time for um, for the wife, certainly, if, if he's doing that much at work, that much with wargaming, and, and then the kids. Yeah, and then he meets Dave Arneson. He gets Arneson's rules. There's also the lesser-known sort of uh, other Daves from the Twin City areas. Hmm. There's Dave McGarry's board game Dungeon, in all mm-hmm. caps with an exclamation mark, and all of this gets fused into what will eventually become the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. Can you talk us through these, you know, early encounters with Arneson and, and what happened there? Because it later becomes quite a controversy. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I'll do my best to kind of uh, hit the high points because it, it's a pretty complex story, as you can imagine. Um, so, uh, so around 1966 or so is when Gary really gets deep into wargaming circles. Now, so wargaming and miniatures, um, you know, tabletop wargaming is is a pretty esoteric diversion at this point. There are really not that many people doing it, but those that are try to stay in touch via correspondence, uh, specifically in the in um, between letters and, and newsletters. They would put together these little newsletters. Um, that become these kind of little fanzines that would circulate to these national wargaming groups. But you're talking about like 20, 30 people nationwide. You know, you were lucky if you could, we were in any proximity at all to someone you could play these games with. So Gary gets really into, um, uh, into these, these hobbies, uh, in the mid sixties. And, um, by, you know, 1967, um, you know, one of these wargaming groups that he's associated with, decides that, wow, we should kind of hold a little convention. Um, you know, we should we should try to get everyone together and see how it all goes. Well, they try that in Pennsylvania. And Gary, again, is, is kind of an officer of one of these um, these wargaming groups. But again, think like a little fan club is all it really is. And it doesn't go very well, this Pennsylvania um, um, kind of meeting uh, convention, if you will. Well, um, Gary does something kind of similar to at his house that year uh, with about 20 gamers that he kind of brings in from the region, people from Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, basically, um, it was informal, but he had brought a bunch of people to his house, and he really loved this concept of bringing all these people to this little house on Center Street in Lake Geneva and having them sleep on the floor and doing this. So he, uh, as he continues to kind of correspond with people nationwide through these, these newsletters and through letters, um, he gets the idea that he thinks he might be able to run a better convention that was tried the year before, 1968. Um, and so in 68, he, he goes ahead and um, tries to put up um, something called the Lake Geneva War Games Convention, uh, Gen Con for short. Uh, and, of course, it's the same Gen Con that you would know and love now that fetches, what, 60,000, 70,000 people a year in Indianapolis. That all started as this little, you know, uh, kind of fan club wargaming convention in Lake Geneva. So um, Gary arranges it. He arranges the whole thing. That There was a... Um, this little uh, horticultural hall about a block away from his house. And he puts up the whole event there and he gets about a hundred people to come from, um, from across the country. And again, mostly the Midwest, but you know, some people from the East coast 
Um, and uh, it's a great success. You know, he's able to, to kind of mobilize this, this group of early wargamers. And that's a huge accomplishment if you consider the climate of wargaming at the time, which is it's a completely disparate community of people that range from, say, roughly 10 years old to, well, to, to however old, you know, you might be, you could be 50 or 60, uh, 70. But um, this is group. It's just not not well organized group, and there's certainly no one that's that's bringing them all together in in a place. But Gary does it in 1968 at Gen Con one, and and that really gets the ball rolling in a lot of ways. Again, it gets Gary in the face of people that are innovating, that are doing um, uh, basically rules modification and different things. And meanwhile, Gary's doing the same thing in the course of writing for these fanzines. You know, he's trying to contribute all basic, by the way, free of charge. He's doing this all for passion. Uh, in his free time, whatever that looks like to Gary, who has none. Um, and so what happens by 1969 is, again, um, the, the, the wargaming um, community starts getting a little bit more solidified, again, largely through Gary's efforts. And uh, at Gen Con 2, he meets this young um, college student named Dave Arneson, who is a college student at um, in uh, St. Paul, Minneapolis area. And um, he comes down to to you know to basically take part in this in this gaming convention that that is a little bit bigger I think that 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 second year 1969, um, and they get to talking and they get to talking and realizing they have a lot of similar interests, and one thing that's on both of their minds um, ends up being well they're both very interested in Napoleonic war games that is to say war games of the Napoleonic era, uh, and so th- that's where they, they first kind of have a bond over like what what they could do with war games in that particular genre. And uh, this starts this relationship where they start uh, corresponding very regularly and they start collaborating on various types of rules modifications. So meanwhile, Gary, um, a a few things are happening in Gary's life that are particularly interesting, I think at least relevant to the story. One of which is that by 1970, he loses his job as an insurance underwriter at the Fireman's Fund of Chicago. That's important for a couple reasons. One is that he he just has has his, his fifth kid within weeks of losing this job. So his family all of a sudden is on the ropes financially. Um, they were already living in a very tight shoestring budget, but they become very much on the ropes. Um, but it has kind of an unforeseen consequence, which is that while Gary is now broken and literally living on food stamps um, with his family trying to kind of make it all work, he it frees him up to have a lot of time to do um, war game and miniatures design, gaming game design. Um which, of course, is Gary's passion. It's actually one of the reasons that he lost his job at the, um, the Fireman's Fund of Chicago. Um, it, you know, it, it was kind of suggested that he was focusing a little bit more on his hobbies than his work. So um, Gary all of a sudden has a lot of time on his hands, and he's been collaborating with um, this, this small mail-order gaming company in Indiana called uh, Guiden Games. Um, fellow named Don Lowry that, that owns it. And, um, and Lowry asks Gary to go ahead and start designing games for him under this, this mail order, um, label. So he does. Gary designs a couple of board games, but most importantly, he designs this little miniatures rule set called Chainmail with a collaborator named Jeff Parent. So Jeff Parent is, is in Gary's local gaming group. They, they have this local game group called the Late Geneva Tactical Studies Association. And these two gentlemen decide they, to, to formalize some, some little miniatures rules. Um, and again, think of like a big sand table is what they, they play on. And they've got these little elastolin plastic miniature figures that they, they recreate these battles with, right? And they have various mechanics that, that dictate how these games go. Well, they put together this really formalized set of rules to, to run a miniatures game. But what's really important about Chainmail that comes out in 1971 through Guiden Games is that um, at the end of Chainmail, the last section of Chainmail, is, is something that Gary calls the, the fantasy supplement. 
um, which is really interesting for a lot of reasons. The fantasy supplement basically suggests that, um, well, let, let me back up. For chainmail, if it if it's not obvious from the title, I'm sure it actually isn't because a lot of this stuff's really not very obvious at all or, or intuitive. But so chainmail is 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 important because it's a medieval miniatures game. At the time, nobody was doing. I should say nobody. Very few people were thinking about medieval miniatures. It was actually mostly um, historical war miniatures from say World War II or the Napoleonic era. Uh, very few people went back to the medieval era to to use for miniatures mechanics. It just wasn't done for whatever reason. So. So here Gary puts out this medieval um, version of a miniatures game, and it's got this thing called the fantasy supplement at the end. And the natural connection is that most fantasy basically is set in what we would describe as kind of a faux medieval era, right? Think Lord of the Rings. It's kind of this uh, medieval style world with magic and so on and so forth, monsters. So Gary gets this idea to put in the fantasy supplement. And the fantasy supplement pretty much says, hey, if you want to take these medieval miniature rules and apply them to a fantasy game, say, recreate the battles of, of Tolkien. You can go ahead and do that. Um, and he actually gives mechanics about how that would work with wizards and, and heroes, these, um, you know, basically knights. Um, their, their wizards have spells and different, you know, I mean, I mean there, are, there are monsters. There are all these different things that wouldn't otherwise exist, let's say, in a, in a traditional medieval miniatures game. And again, so he outlines these things, and it's not a particularly long supplement, but, but there it is. And so... People start buying this this game, and again, it's not making anybody rich, whether it be Guiden Games or Gary himself, but it, it is selling a lot of copies for a, a, a little pamphlet booklet. Um, I want to say it's about a 60-page little um, pamphlet size booklet. And so, again, this thing is selling, you know, hundreds of copies, which is a, a big deal uh, in a in a, a world where there are basically no participants. Um, and the fantasy thing is really getting a lot of people's attention. Um, namely, his um, his recent acquaintance and, and now is kind of col- is on and off again collaborator Dave Arneson. And Arneson takes these these fantasy rules that that he saw in Chainmail and he ends up applying them to this other concept that he's been working on the, the Twin Cities. So that you mentioned the two other Daves, right? So you've got these these three people, right? You've got Dave Wesley, Dave uh, McGarry, and Dave Arneson who. Um, are all interested in all kinds of things, whether it be Napoleonics or, or medieval uh, games, all these, these things. And um, they've all contributed these different pieces to what becomes this game that Dave Arneson starts running on a regular basis with this group called Blackmore. One thing that Blackmore does is it takes Gary's Chainmail Fantasy Supplement and it really it, it, it applies that as the combat mechanics of this game called Blackmore. But what makes Blackmore unique is that it's a game where you you don't play a battalion or a whole army of of characters as you would say in a miniatures war game. You play a single character in Blackmore, and your character actually has quantifiable statistics and a name. And you actually declare your actions for your character, and you you go to these underground dungeon adventures. Um, and you uh, it has this kind of first person role assumption that that nothing else had had really done at least in any formalized way at this point. And so. Again, the you could say as a matter of, of lineage or chain of title, even um, this 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 little chainmail miniatures war game that Gary designed with this fantasy element that got people thinking a lot more about fantasy games, um, kind of inspired Dave Arneson to apply all these put all these pieces together and roll it out for this this group of Twin Cities gamers. So when Gary gets wind of this Blackmore game and actually gets uh, to, to witness uh, Arneson run a, a campaign of it uh, when he comes to Lake Geneva, 
um, he sees that it is something absolutely special and really incomparable. Um, Gary gets extremely excited about it. So he asks Arneson to provide him some uh, whatever rules he might have written out, uh, to which Arneson provides uh, basically his notes on the game, you know, which is which is as Gary used to describe it, you know, 18 pages of, of scribbles and, and notes. Um, no one is never se- no one's ever seen those notes, so no one can really say exactly what was in them. But um, but it is fairly uh, established that that there was it was some preliminary notes that that Dave was keeping for his own campaign. He never really thought about publishing this game at the time yet. So um, Gary takes this and decides he wants to collaborate with Dave Arneson and write a new game that uses this general concept and these pieces to put together something entirely new. And that's exactly what they do uh, between 1973 and 1974. Uh, or I should say during the course of 1973, the game, com- the D&D comes out in 74. Um, they collaborate via mostly correspondence. And, and Gary takes these notes and really develops it into a very, very codified, very, very detailed game. Um, that comes in these three little 50-page booklets, um, all part of um, a big leather uh, wood grain box set that becomes the original uh, Dungeons and Dragons uh, box set released in 1974. So that's kind of how it all came about. Is is um, it was many many pieces that contributed to it, and kind of the right people talking at the right time. And by early 1974, uh, D&D is upon the wargaming market. Really incredible, uh, multifaceted history. Um, and your recall for it is really impressive. Turning more to Gygax's personal life, did you get a feeling when you were doing your research about what the Gygax household was like? For example, I didn't realize that uh, they were Jehovah's Witnesses, and then this sort of started to create some tension with uh, their son Ernie when he started to move away from that faith uh, in his early life. What was their household like, do you think? Uh, yeah, the Gygax household um, was certainly described as a very loving household and a fairly chaotic household, really, uh, for a lot of reasons. I mean, again, if you think through the 60s, um, I think Ernie is born in what? Ernie's born in 1959. Um, I, I, at least is born in 1961. So, I mean, they're they having kids like every roughly every two years. And again, by 1970, they've got five kids in this little tiny house um, in Lake Geneva, which is a rented house, by the way. They don't own it. And uh, they're, they're living on a shoestring the whole time. Um, and, you know, in the course of, of, of all of this, um, you know, Gary is is commuting all of this time. He's 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 obsessed with these hobbies. He's spending an in, inordinate amount of time uh, away from home doing these hobbies. And, of course, it's it's really becoming a barrier between he and his wife, Mary. Um, and in the course of all of this, um, yeah, Mary uh, ends up getting fairly um, associated with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the local congregation. And ends up bringing in Gary, who actually gets fairly interested in it, in it himself, and he, he does take on the ideology. Um, he does have some, some involvement in, in the church. I wouldn't call it heavy-duty involvement, but certainly some. Um, and that's just kind of one of the many backdrops that's happening um, in this family life uh, as they move forward. And, and really, they have this very tumultuous, very chaotic family life where money is very scarce, time is very scarce. Um, and all the while, you, you've got this this really this kind of creative genius um, who's fairly eccentric, right, who's kind of leading the family um, into the unknown, right? And and that's really, I think, um, what causes actually a lot of closeness of the individual brothers and sisters, but certainly became a, a major wedge between Gary and Mary Jo. I mean, does that answer your question largely? I think, yeah, yeah. And were there any surprises for you as your research on Gary's life unfolded, things that really you were perhaps taken aback by or, or anything like that? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, it was honest, honestly, it was surprise after surprise for me, um, especially walking in to the topic without a ton of, of background knowledge on Gary. On uh, a granted, I played the game my whole life, and I, you know, I, I knew what what everybody knows about the general history of D anD D or or even Gary. But of course, you know, Gary had been attached to all kinds of unfair rumors and nonsense, you know, during the the Satanic Panic era, right? The the the, the that area of the the eighties where people got very afraid of this game. Uh, for many reasons that we can we can talk about separately. Um, but so, you know, so uh, um, I just didn't have a lot of of depth or background knowledge about Gary, other than the fact that he was this kind of shadowy figure that had created this amazing game that lived, you know, 70 miles up the road in Lake Geneva all these years. Um, and so for me, it was just surprise after surprise, it, you know, starting really early, if you consider the fact that, you know, he didn't have a driver's license um, and he accomplished all that he did. Um, he didn't finish high school, let alone college, you know, that to me is staggering if you consider how um, how intellectual Dungeons & Dragons is, uh, how literary the game is. And here's Gary, who was this fanatical reader of pulp fiction, of sci-fi, fantasy, you name it, wasn't particularly interested in school books, but did love history. Um, you know, a, a guy that, that put all this stuff together without finishing a high school education. Um, the thing that I think was most surprising to me, though, the thing that, that really kind of blew me away was the adversity, the circumstances around the creation of the game when it came out in 74. I, I had no concept, and I, I don't think most people do really had any concept of the level of adversity that Gary was facing when all that was going down. So by 1973, while he's working on this game, or early 74, Gary is basically unemployed. He's bought some cobbler equipment, and he's working uh, as a part-time cobbler basically out of his basement. They've got no money. Um, he's been unemployed now for what, you know, three years. Um, and he's got five kids he's trying to support and feed. His back is really against the wall. And again, this is, this is a guy that does not have a college degree, let alone a high school diploma. He doesn't have a driver's license. This is a person that has no resources. And, uh, but what he does have is this unbelievable passion and this incredible creativity. And so he just rolls up his sleeves and he creates this game with what expectation, who knows, um, but then for not only to, to, to write the game with Dave Arneson and put the whole thing together, but then to find a way to get it published, you know, this original thousand box, uh, uh, brown box copies that they put together, which, which costs a few thousand dollars. And he has to take on partners in, in, in order to do this. Uh, one is his, one of his best friends, Don Kay, who ends up taking a life insurance, uh, a loan on a, on a life insurance policy he has to enable to, to contribute his part. Gary doesn't have any money to contribute. And that's when they take in this third partner, um, Brian Bloom, who does have some money uh, to his name. And he's the one that makes it possible for this this uh, this triple partnership now to to go ahead and, and produce this game. But the actual circumstances around what what's going with Gary at the time, he's got nothing going for him. It was literally his last hope to get this thing done. And, and sure enough, it becomes, you know, a marvel. Amazing story, and in a way, you know, we may have his dismissal from the uh, insurance company to thank uh, for the creation of Dungeons and Dragons, I suppose, since it seemed like it gave him the time and the the real impetus to do a hundred percent his passion. I, I agree with you. I like so many things. I, you know, I think if if um, things had gone differently, who knows when or how the game would have come out, if ever. Um, I, I, I do believe that the circumstances probably never would have aligned um, had Gary not been dismissed, again, because it directly re- led to him being able to publish Chainmail through Guide and Games, and Chainmail, again, 
uh, gave Arneson the pieces he needed to put together his, you know, this Blackmore campaign. So, yeah, I mean, again, if you look at the, the chicken egg part of it, um, it's it's definitely back to the future. Right. If if, um, uh, it, you know, if the McFly's don't meet, then Marty's never born, I guess. Absolutely. Fast forwarding uh, to past sort of his initial um, success at TSR and to the point in his life, which I wasn't aware of, where he actually moved out uh, to California. He got a little sidelined in terms of the, the main aspect of TSR's business and basically got sent out there with the idea that there would be this Dungeons and Dragons uh, entertainment wing. And uh, I didn't realize uh, the kind of lifestyle that he had led out in California. And you describe him as, as being a uh, a somewhat heavy recreational drug and alcohol user uh, while he was out there, which is certainly not what I what I pictured when I had this image of Gary Gygax in my mind. What was that time for Gary like in California? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know if I described it quite as, as heavy. I mean, if for no other reason, I don't think I could describe it that way because it's, it's never quite confirmed. I think there was a lot of rumors, you might say, oh, okay. that, that Gary was doing heavy drug and alcohol. I, I mean, I can confirm that there was certainly some. Um, but uh, I, I can't go much beyond that. But what I can say, certainly, is that it was a wild lifestyle. I mean, it was a um, it was certainly a wild up all night, um, you know, party hard and live very big lifestyle. So th- that, I think, is is irrefutable. I mean, he was living he was living on a six acre estate in Beverly Hills on the top of a mountain in um, in King Vidor's estate. King Vidor was this great Hollywood producer, director of the 20s and 30s. And um, and that was TSR's. West Coast headquarters uh, and where Gary lived. It was it was both his living circumstances and the um, uh, what they call Dungeons and Dragons Entertainment um, uh, Entertainment Company's headquarters. And that was basically where Gary set up operation to um, to not only live large, which he was. I mean, I think he was really enjoying his time out in Beverly Hills um, for about what, about a year and a half there from from 83 to, say, mid 84, late 84. Um, But. Uh, this is also where, you know, he's got writers from CBS coming over and where they're, they're having storyboard sessions and stuff like that for the, the Dungeons and Dragons animated series cartoon that comes out in 1983. Um, so it's this, it's, it's this really, really great lifestyle for him. And I think it's very safe to say that it was a very wild time for him. Um, and it was a rebound time for him. I think what's notable about it is that this is a guy by 83 who's been largely disenfranchised from the management of the company. He is still the face and the figurehead, but he doesn't he doesn't own majority uh, the majority shares. First of all, that's that's owned by his partners, the Bloom Brothers. Um, and he's lost a lot of his creative control in a lot of ways. And so by 83, you pair that with the fact that his marriage has fallen apart, um, which, you know, again, was bound to happen over all the years where they were kind of shift passing in the night. So his marriage has fallen apart. His mother dies just a couple of years before that, who was a really major uh, stabilizing force for him. Gary was Gary was unstable, for, certainly by that time. I, I think he had had a lot of success. He had had a lot of money um, that had come to him as a result of designing this 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 game that had really taken off. But he was he was in a in a really strange place in his life. And I think when it comes to his his psychology, a lot of the dissolution of. Gary's involvement with TSR seems to stem from the time where they brought in Lorraine Williams as uh, initially sort of a management consultant. They thought they needed someone with business savvy, and then she actually becomes uh, a shareholder and eventually, I guess, the majority shareholder. 
um, at at TSR. So what I realize you could speak for a long time about this, but just in short, what happened there that caused this conflict and and Gary's eventual break uh, with with the company that he loved so much and that he created? That's a great question, and um, I'll try to be as, as brief as I can because, as you know, it's a, it's an infinitely complex story when you look at all the different pieces that go into it. But I, I mentioned just a little bit earlier that Gary was forced to take on partners to produce the original game. Right, that was a critical path item that had to happen, and one of them was was the one of the Bloom brothers, Brian Bloom. And um, so that was important, and it worked out well for a long time. They actually got along really well for a long time. Well, as I mentioned, by 83, and really by the early 80s, around 80 is where things people start not getting along quite as well. There are scuffles. And all the while, Gary never owns full um, ownership. I should say, shouldn't say never, but again, that would be that's a nuance that's not overly important to the story. For, the, for all intents and purposes, Gary never owns majority interest in, in TSR, the company that produces Dungeons & Dragons even though he's the founder on kind of the Steve Jobs um, part of this, he's, he doesn't, he doesn't own um, majority interest. Uh, And so to that end, he's, um, he's the driver of the company. He's the face of the company, but he's not truly the boss. If you really take it to its logical conclusion. So um, this, you know, this kind of comes out in a a lot of different ways over time, but, but what ends up happening is, is uh, he and the Bloom brothers start becoming really, um, they they start having a a fairly, um, hostile relationship, which is one reason why, of course, Gary ends up going to Beverly Hills to get away from them and, and them to get away from him. Um, so in the course of all of this, uh, Gary actually meets um, this great young writer named Flint Dilly, who um, writes for Transformers and all these other, uh, or, or had eventually did write for Transformers, a lot of other, you know, great cartoon shows, whatever he was working on that stuff back then. Um, and, uh, and Flint Dilly is, is an interesting fellow for many reasons. He's a war gamer. He loves to come out to the Beverly Hills mansion and play games with Ernie and Gary and all these people. And, uh, and Ernie and Flint actually are, start working on some, um, uh, kind of choose your own adventure books for TSR. And, uh, Flint Dilly, um, comes from a family, um, of, of John F. Dilly, who was the head of the, uh, of the national newspaper syndicate. And his family owned the IP rights to Buck Rogers. And so as a result, uh, Dilly comes from, from some pretty significant money. And his sister, Lorraine, um, is someone who works in management and, and she's, you know, interested in investor and all that stuff. So Gary gets to know Flint really well. And come 1984 or so, things really start going rough at TSR financially for a lot of reasons that, that we won't get into today. But th- there's a lot of things that they've, they've really overexpanded as a company. They haven't managed their staff and they haven't managed their expenses well at all. Um, and again, Gary's part of that. The Blooms are not doing very well at home in Lake Geneva. And then Gary, again, is spending a lot of money in, in Hollywood. And so what ends up happening is that Gary, um, first of all, um, finds a way to, to expel the Blooms from management, which is a little bit complicated because again, there, there've been a board that had been taken on. So while, the Blooms were still um, the majority shareholders. There, there were some mechanisms that Gary could play to get them kind of removed from day-to-day management. Um, he manages to do this, and in the course of doing this, he, he needs to bring in fresh money to help fix the financial problems at, at TSR. And so one of the people he thinks of is this Lorraine Williams, the sister of one of his, best, one of his good friends, Flint Dilly, um, who um, she uh, can bring money with her and management skills. So Gary brings her on as like a general manager, a VP, um, and a hopeful investor. So um, 
that you know this is happening in basically what early 1985 is where Gary kind of takes control of the administration of the company again and brings in Lorraine Williams and he actually also at this point exercises a stock option where he does at least temporarily get majority interest but it's the same stock option that the Blooms also have they just choose not to exer- exercise right so it's a little bit of of kind of um, just kind of trading places in line for a little while. Um, so anyway, the way this all resolves is that he brings in uh, Ms. Williams, um, who really walks into a, a what is a pretty dysfunctional company, uh, certainly by her accounts, a, a pretty a place that's really not being run well, that is financially underwater. And um, and so Gary really fights with all of his might to, to try to keep the company afloat, try to put out new products that, that return it to financial stability. Um, but meanwhile, Gary is is negotiating with the Bloom Brothers for their their shares. Now that they're kind of disenfranchised from the administration of the company, they they, they want to unload their shares, and Gary is is trying to, to get a deal. Well, what ends up happening is that after basically unsu- unsuccessful negotiations between Gary and the Bloom Brothers, uh, the Blooms end up going to Lorraine Williams, who at this point has become a little bit um, disillusioned with both TSR and Gary specifically. They really do not get along, it turns out. Um, and she ends up buying the shares outright from the Bloom Brothers. So she buys majority interest in TSR by the end of 1985 and takes over the company and, and subsequently expels Gary. Um, so, I mean, that's how that all kind of comes about. Um, and it's, again, it, it all really has its roots in the fact that Gary needed to take on partnership early in the foundation of TSR and D&D to make it happen. So um, it's amazing how these decisions you make, you know, when you need to early on to, to make something happen and not coming in, and in his case, biting him later down the road, where um, that, that's how it all kind of resolved. Absolutely. Thanks for that. And what was Gary's life like uh, after all of this had blown over into his his sort of golden years? Um, it seems like he continued to be very active on online message boards and, and chat and very active in in the convention community. Uh, but when you search Gary Gygax on YouTube, there's almost nothing of Gary speaking uh, to an audience or anything like that, which, which surprised me. Can you talk uh, to us about that period in Gary's life? Well, absolutely. Um, so after, after Gary um, was, you know, basically kicked out of TSR, um, you know, he sold out his shares. He moved on. He actually tried to start a, another gaming company called New Infinities and actually took some some of his old TSR talent with him, some of the, the, the big hitters like Frank Menser and Kim Mohan. Um, and they, they basically tried to, to put out, you know, based on, on Gary's name, they tried to put out um, some some really innovative uh, fantasy and other types of stuff, um, sci-fi stuff, too. Um, but it doesn't take. It, it, it really doesn't work. There's not enough capital involved. Um, TSR starts to get a little bit litigious and threatening with Gary because they see him as a competitor, which he is. Um, at this point. And so um, Gary ends up, um, New Infinity ends up folding relatively quickly. Um, and Gary kind of starts, um, well, not freelancing is the wrong word. He, you know, he, he gets interest from a lot of different places because he's kind of a legend in the space. But, you know, D&D, you know, by the late 80s, early 90s, again, there's the public interest of it had already waned. If you consider how big a deal it was circa 1982, 83, when it's got making appearances in E.T., kind of the height of the satanic panic and all this, this stuff that's happening. Um, so between, you might call it a, a waning interest in D&D relative to its high point, plus a lot of competition in the market, um, you know, uh, Gary becomes a little bit of a commodity. 
Um, he ends up working with a games designer workshop on um, another game uh, called uh, Dangerous Dimensions, which they have to change to Dangerous Journeys because TSR doesn't like the fact that it's it's got it's a D and D. It's it's also a D and D game, then Dangerous Dimensions. So um, again, Gary kind of bounces around to these different game ideas, and he ends up writing some of them. He ends up publishing some of them. Um, his last big game was this game called Legendary Adventures that he takes on in the late 90s. Uh, it goes through the early 2000s. He ends up getting another publisher for it. Um, and it does okay. It's a very innovative game, an interesting game. But um, all this is to say um, Gary hadn't struck a big hit for many, many, many years by, by say, 2000. And it was around that time where people that grew up with the game started to realize that this D&D thing was a pretty foundational, pretty amazing thing. And that Gary was was behind it, and so he started getting credit in different ways. Like, for example, his his, his spot on Futurama, where you know he's there with with Al Gore and uh, um, Michelle Nichols and um, uh, uh, Hawking, um, you know, and and kind of you know making these interesting appearances in pop culture where people are kind of suggesting that this guy really did lay the foundations of some important stuff. Um, but. You know, again, he's not wealthy by this time. He hasn't really been able to cash in on the D&D craze um, that, that really funded his life so much earlier in his life. Um, and it's kind of before the con movement really, really got hot. And I think that's that's probably most important to your question is that um, the convention scene um, really, really started to explode in kind of the mid, um, you know, let's call it circle 2005, a little bit later, perhaps. Um, you know, and, and Gary is, is, is kind of actually ill by that period and, and, you know, dies only just a couple of years later in 2008. So I would say that where people really started to realize Gary and this incredible invention, Dungeons and Dragons with Dave Arneson, when it became a, this huge pop culture phenomena that people realized was foundational to so many big, uh, multi-billion dollar phenomena that exist, um, was kind of a little bit too late for Gary to really enjoy too much of it. If that makes sense, you know, he, he didn't participate in message boards and various types of interviews. A lot of people did realize this. Um, but, you know, had, if Gary was still living now, I mean, he would be he would be a tremendous celebrity, an incredible celebrity. Uh, and, and he would have been for the last probably five years. He, he died just a little bit before, let's say, pop culture acknowledged um, his contribution. Absolutely. In my interview with David Ewalt recently on uh, his excellent book of Dice and Men, I talked about this anecdote of uh, my friend who works um, with a marketing company in London, and they were trying to see what the popular kids uh, in London are drinking at parties and how, you know, when they drink certain beverages and so on. So as part of this, he actually went to uh, this party held by these painfully cool London kids that were just you know, so fashionable, so hipster. And of all things uh, that they were talking about uh, during this wild night, their ongoing D&D campaign uh, was one of them. So to me, that was just so striking in terms of how much D&D has changed in its place in, in popular culture. No, I mean, it, it's pretty incredible. And I'm, I'm really... Um... I'm really glad that we've, we've come to a place where um, there's a lot of things that are coming out that uh, people are making the connections that things like, you know, Final Fantasy or World of Warcraft uh, or what have you um, have their roots in this little tabletop game invented in 1974 by Gary Gygax. Um, 
this really is um, the, the you know the foundation of, of all of these huge multi-billion-dollar pop culture phenomena. Even first-person shooter video games were directly inspired by by D and D. Um, that is to say that the people that invented that game um, were big players of it and actually found um, their, their concept from their their ongoing campaign. You know, so it, it, there's all these little surprises about how the game has really moved mountains and has become this incredibly far-reaching uh, movement, even though the game itself has always been somewhat contained. Um, you know, even in its largest playership, you know, you're talking about maybe three, five million people. Uh, today might be a little bit more. I think the game is doing as well today as it's done in, perhaps ever. Um, but, it, you know, it's still a relatively um, esoteric diversion, um, you know, that, that only certain people really want to partake in in a live format. But uh, it's become this tremendous um, kind of foundational piece of pop culture. Absolutely. And I think that pop culture now is so much more microscopic in the sense of you can get podcasts on exclusively fifth edition or second edition or first edition uh, Dungeons and Dragons. And people with those interests uh, can easily find uh, content on, you know, streaming on Twitch, on YouTube, on Facebook uh, in, in a way that they never could before, in a way that you would need to subscribe to very niche, you know, wargaming journals and talk to maybe a hundred other people in North America um, about. So, yeah, it definitely seems like uh, it's it's really changed quite a bit just from my perspective as someone who, you know, I started the game in the early 90s. Yeah, I mean, again, I think D&D is, is not only on, on the rise, but I think it, it's going to continue to get more and more um, more and more visibility and kind of more and more uh, interest as as these big things that come out that are inspired by D&D, whether it be you know, Stranger Things or whether it be, um, uh, you know, Ready Player One or the forthcoming D&D film that, that Warner Brothers is working on or, or, or any number of things that really have a lot of their roots um, in D&D. Like, I, I think these things are to get more and more pervasive and and all that will end up coming back to the game and, and hopefully bringing more and more people back to the tabletop, um, which is a really special experience that, again, I would never want to get lost in all of this, that um, tabletop role-playing is a very special, very unique experience that, that's hard to recreate in any other format, whether it be MMOs or, or what have you. Three more. Well, you've been very generous with your time, so wrapping up, uh, as is the tradition, what's uh, what's next for you, Michael? Um, thanks for asking. Um, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that, that I've got two projects that are, are both under wraps, so I can only say limited amount about both of them. Um, uh, but I can tell you a little bit, you know, the first of which is a book about Walt Disney and Disneyland that I'm very excited about, um, kind of the foundations of that and how it all went about. Um, that's a pretty amazing story in, in many, many ways. Uh, so that's one of my projects. And the other is a book I can probably say even a little bit less about. Uh, I have a couple collaborators on it, um, and it's it's a book that I can tell you is very different than Empire of Imagination, but it, it is in, you would say, broadly in the role-playing history space, you might say. Well, again, you've been so generous with your time, Michael. Empire of Imagination, just a fantastic book. Enjoyed the read so much, and we thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. 